Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Let's just get to James Athey over in London, <laughs> investment director over at Aberdeen. James, great to catch up with you. It's like the question of the week. What's it all about, James? What's behind this bond market move? Hey, John. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It's been a very strange few trading days. We had stronger U.S. data and the, and the market seemingly couldn't sell off at all. And then, then we've seemingly got these kind of random sell-offs out of nowhere with not much behind them. Uh, I mean, Larry Summers there, I agree with you that it's all a bit spurious, some, some false accuracy in there. But I think that term premium element is certainly part of it. But if you look at the equity market, 11% earnings growth price for, for 12 months ahead in the S&P and trading at 20 times roughly, that, that looks like a pretty nice, if not soft landing. Yet you've got this massive inversion in the bond yield curve. One of those is wrong, and it looks like they're kind of converging from both directions, which, which is probably reasonable given the data we're seeing in the U.S. Does it make sense to you, James, that we're seeing uh, risk assets hold in there despite some of the moves that we're seeing in benchmark bond yields? Is that a loaded question, Lisa, because you and I tend to be the only bears that are speaking publicly? <laughs> Just yeah, carry mean, on. I found, it, I found it difficult to explain or justify, really, that, that rally in the equity market from a fundamental or from a probability-weighted risk-adjusted basis. It looked like there was a lot of short covering in that, in spite of the fact that, obviously, the economic news has been, has been better than expected. So I am generally surprised at how well equities can ignore some of the, the macro drivers. Uh, but it's hard to pick holes in, for example, retail sales data this week. It, it's, it's hard to, to try and claim that the consumer is on the precipice uh, when the spending numbers are as strong as that. And so whatever the data is OK, I think equities can hang in there. What about credit? We were talking about how narrow credit spreads were, and we were talking with Winnie Caesar about how much companies have readjusted to prolong some of their payment structures and increase their cash, shore up uh, their their ability to uh, to maintain themselves through this period. Are you getting bullish on credit, or do you think that it's over its skis? How do you sort of rationalize? 
Well, so I think the spreads are too tight, broadly speaking. I don't think you're really being accurately compensated for the likely default risk. You can see that realised defaults in, in most countries and regions have been ticking up to a far greater degree than we've been used to. So I don't think the spread component is necessarily attractive. But what the bulls and, and a lot of credit guys will tell you is that the all-in yield is very attractive, obviously because of the cheapness of, of underlying government bond yields. And I think that's reasonable. So I think if you're being selective and choosing high-quality corporate credits, you've probably got some nice investment opportunities there. One of the really interesting charts that I've seen recently has been that a lot of companies have actually benefited from higher rates. You know, they engaged in precautionary borrowing sort of for five or, or seven years when rates were low and now they get to park that cash at, at the deposit rate or at cash rates which are five five and a half percent and so in spite of this monetary tightening it's actually generating positive cash flow for a lot of these uh, cash rich corporates hey james we've talked about this kind of stuff before but there's often a geographic regional bias on certain issues if you ask someone in new york on wall street about china shrug of the shoulders and the stereotype would be, for the boomers at least, tell me where the Dow is and move on with life. In London, there's a much more nuanced view about macro and China specifically. James, what's the view on China right now in the city? Yeah, I mean, I think people are nervous slash cautious. But to be honest, as is often the case, you know, most folks are biased to, to believe that we will see what we have seen. And that is when China has a bit of a wobble, we should just expect quote unquote stimulus and that'll lead to a positive reaction from markets. So it's not something that people are really kind of looking to play as a, as a macro theme. And, all, and the door doesn't swing both ways. When the US sneezes, the world catches a cold. The US is a massive consumer with a huge current account deficit. China really is consuming domestically and, and exporting a lot. And so it's not the same linkage, but you are seeing, I think, places like Australia and Germany likely to struggle going forward. But most people, I think, want to buy dollar C&H as an expression of China concerns, maybe yep. sell the Aussie dollar, but not much else. So, James, with that in mind, are we thinking about it the wrong way round? Not how China influences the US, but how the US influences China, given what's happened with real rates and what could happen with the dollar going forward from here? Yeah, to a, to a very great degree. I mean, you can see the, the, the Chinese policymakers, the PBOC, really trying to offset this weakness in the yuan. I guess they're worried about a similar situation to 2015 emerging and capital flight and, and creating uh, bigger stability problems for themselves. Um, but they are fighting what looks to be a pretty losing battle because the US data is just holding up that much better than everywhere else. And so in spite of uh, the market desperate to, to trade carry, to trade risk on, the US dollar really is just starting to generate a bit of upward momentum because we are, I think, we are in a US exceptionalism world, at least for now. And, and that does create problems globally. It does create problems for, for dollar borrowers. We know that. So what are you doing right now, uh, given the fact that some people are saying we're at an inflection point? Do you believe that? Are you shifting some of your allocations in response? Um, I mean, I've been saying that we're on the precipice of an inflection for quite some time. And sometimes you look really clever and sometimes you look really stupid. It's been that kind of environment. Bear, bull, flatter, steepener. We've had it all over the last eight weeks. I do think Europe is, is starting to show its true colours. They've got structural weakness and cyclical headwinds now because of, of policy and the pandemic effects subsiding. So increase a bit of duration there. And I think the US yield curve, I think there's a good chance it can steepen both ways. I think it can bear steepen in a soft landing. It can bull steepen if the data disappoints. You know, I love an asymmetric position. So adding to steepening risk and actually been paying US five-year, five-year because that looks really low. And if we get a bear steepener, that should rocket higher. But beyond that, it's quite difficult. Still trying to cling on to the more medium term positions, generally being defensive. 
um, and hoping that the forward-looking indicators will give us an accurate indication, and that suggests things will get worse from here. You mentioned a short squeeze. How much have the shorts been squeezed out? How much are people really long this equity market uh, at a time where there are some real questions? I mean, it's always difficult to say with any degree of accuracy, but if you look at surveys, if you look at sort of uh, FMS, Hartnett's flow show type stuff from BAML and you look at various other indicators and surveys that we would look at, it does suggest that there has been a shift. Sentiment has, has shifted away from expecting a recession, actually to the majority of people not, from people being underweight or short equities in decent size to people being neutral to long. I think from a quantitative perspective, the, the CTAs, the vol control, the risk parity, these guys have not only been buying on rising prices, but they've been adding gross risk because of falling uh, implied volatility. So I do think we're getting to that stage where most folk are now on the other side of the boat. That suggests it should take less to tip us over. I love the flow show note. Michael Hartnett. I do too. At BFA. It's one of my favourites. And on Friday. James, thank you. Love the new dress code over at Aberdeen as well. James Athey there of Aberdeen. <laughs> Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get the conversation started on China. We can do that with Susan Thornton from Yale University Law School. Susan, wonderful to have you with us on the program. I think we've always given the Chinese policymaker the benefit of doubt that they can resolve these issues in an orderly way. Is there any reason to believe it is different this time? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on here. One is they're running into structural economic problems, right? We've seen them trying to reform over the years, and they've obviously run into a lot of difficulty with that. And then uh, you see the lack of confidence and the faltering and trust in the economic officials and the Chinese leadership after the COVID lockdowns and then the unwinding of COVID in China. And so I think we're really looking at a kind of a loss of confidence um, on the part of both Chinese participants in the Chinese economy and also foreign participants. We heard from the state council today, they promised to meet annual economic targets through, quote, targeted and forceful macroeconomic adjustments. Susan, what does that actually mean? What levers do they have to restore confidence, as you say, that's been absolutely hammered over the last few years? Yeah, well, they've been struggling to try to find policy responses that are going to actually bring about what they need, which is uh, they need households to start spending. And this has been a problem in the Chinese economy going way back. They've got the highest level of 
of sort of savings uh, in China, and they can't seem to unlock that from households. And so I think uh, what we've seen is they've tried to kind of lower interest rates. They've tried to push out, you know, tiny bits of stimulus, but they're loath to kind of uh, push out a lot of stimulus because they've got a problem in the housing sector, in the real estate sector. Uh, and so I think uh, they're they're really limited. I think what they probably need to do is to try to give some confidence back to the private sector, which is really sitting on the sidelines at this point, looking to see what's going to happen and, and lost confidence. Part of this is international as well, because there was a lot of international investment from U.S., from European companies. We've seen an increasing number of U.S. companies pull back uh, just a bit or significantly. How much do the Chinese authorities want to see some of those international businesses come back versus embrace the isolation, the sort of domestic focus that seems to be uh, more front and center? Yeah, I think you really see them trying to do everything they can to encourage foreign businesses and foreign direct investment to come back into China. Uh, you know, it's it's been a tough five years for foreign businesses trying to work in China. I mean, not just not just COVID, but all of this slew of regulations that have come out, a lot of kind of chilling uh, rules and laws that have been passed, uh, especially on cross-border data flows. It's been very hard for companies to deal with trying to get you know the data that they depend on to do their businesses in many cases back and forth across the border. And so there's just been a whole slew of problems that have, have kept people kind of wondering what they should be doing about their China business and how they should be looking at this market long term. With all your years experience as a diplomat for the U.S. to a host of Asian nations, I'm wondering if the economic difficulties that China is facing makes it more or less difficult for the U.S. to negotiate. In other words, does the U.S. have more leverage or less leverage as a result? Well, I think uh, what I've seen since the Chinese have really started to face up to the fact that the economy is not going to bounce back after COVID the way they were talking about initially. Um, they've re there's really been a big change in, I think, sort of mindset about the need to maintain connectedness with the rest of the world economy. And uh, I think there was a question about that at one point earlier. And, th and there may still be a division inside the Chinese leadership on this. But certainly the technocrat economic experts in the Chinese government understand that the Chinese economy needs to be maintain those connections. Susan, last week the president of the United States referred to the Chinese economy as a ticking time bomb. He referred to some government officials as bad folks. And he said, when bad things start to happen, bad folks do bad things. Susan, what do you reckon he meant by that just last week? Well, it's very hard for me to get inside the head of, of leaders when they say things, Xi Jinping or Joe Biden. But my sense is that what he means is that the Chinese economy is not as impregnable as we've been thinking, that there could be real risks here, and that you know, the Chinese economy is really important to the sort of stability and psychology and internal kind of um, predictability of the Chinese state and the Chinese leadership. And so I think what he meant is that, you know, if the Chinese economy isn't going to be doing well, then the whole Chinese government is going to be getting more desperate. And we may see uh, things that we you know, might not otherwise see. And I think he's worried about some kind of incident or accident that might cause some kind of conflict or crisis that we wouldn't normally see if the Chinese were more confident than they are now. Susan, I have a feeling we'll be talking again soon. Susan's thoughts in there of Yale University Law School.
We've been asking a lot of questions around how long the retailer can keep going, how long the consumer can keep spending, whether they're running out of cash, whether they're going to be challenged by some of their student loan payments. Matt Lizzetti uh, has been upgrading his expectation for growth in the U.S. He has been spot on pushing out his recession call, chief U.S. economist at Deutsche Bank, joining us here in the studio. Matt, just first read. And what we've seen in terms of retailers, the strength, the labor market not cracking, is this an economy that can subsist with rates where they are for a very long time? Look, I think right now it, it looks like the answer is yes in the, in the near term. Um, we just upgraded our Q3 growth forecast to above 3%. You know, everybody was anticipating, I think including the Fed, as we saw in the minutes yesterday, that you would see this second half of the year growth slowdown, that you're beginning to see rates bite, that the tightening of financial conditions and bank lending conditions was going to be impacting the economy. What it looks like we've seen with the data so far, now it's, it's only a very little bit of data for Q3, is an acceleration. Uh, for the consumer, for industrial production. It goes against certainly what we were anticipating at this point in time and raises really important questions, I think, for the Fed. One of the questions, and John asked it earlier, are rates restrictive currently? How do we even know if they are restrictive? Yeah, I think the way that we typically view that is, you know, either through real rates, the Fed leans very heavily on on real rates. And and there we are seeing very significant increases in that, you know, 10-year real yields at, at, at many-year highs. I look at, if you look, five for your five-year real OIS, so some a measure of uh, what our star type estimates are. All of these things have been rising pretty substantially. But then when you translate it into financial conditions, it's not obvious that things are too tight. Most financial conditions indices are, are loose, have been loosening. The one area where there is tightness is bank lending conditions, but we haven't seen that impact the economy as of yet. So just taking a step back for a second before we get into the nitty gritty and I ask you about student loan repayments and all sorts of other issues that are capturing people's attentions. There is a question of whether this is long and variable lags or if this is companies that have pushed out the maturities, consumers that have pushed out their maturities and a lot of resilience at a time where consumers keep spending. Is this an economy that can keep humming along even if the 10-year rate continues to go up, even if we see 4.3% on a sustainable basis? Yeah, so our, our baseline is no. You know, We still have this mild recession uh, in the forecast that we still think the bank lending condition tightening that we've seen, the real rates that we've seen, some of the headwinds for the consumers that are coming up, the student debt payments, the slowing labor market, you're seeing rising delinquencies within the consumer for both credit cards and, and autos. And so our baseline is no, that you know this is an acceleration, but it'll be short term. Eventually, you'll see monetary policy tightening take hold. But on the other side, you know, we're, we're being surprised by the data here. Um, and when you look at the incoming data for the labor market, obviously, initial jobless claims not showing any any uptick, any softening there. What you're seeing in the retail sales report is, is broad-based. Consumer confidence is picking up a little bit. So there are, you know, some, some elements there which make you a little bit more cautious or uh, in terms of thinking about that slowdown in the economy. What do you have to see to change your view? So I, I think, you know, to go fully towards the soft landing, and I think we've been noting the prospects that have been rising here. You need a few things. I think you actually do need to see the economy slow. And and the reason that you need to see the economy slow is because the Fed has been very adamant that if it doesn't, they think that they have more work to do and that they can't have confidence that inflation is going to come down to target. We heard that from Powell at the July FMC meeting. I thought we heard it, and that was the big takeaway from yesterday, that they need to see a slowing economy in order to get confidence that inflation is coming down. So I think you need that. You need to see wage and price pressures coming off. We're, we're seeing some evidence of that. The last you know, two inflation reports from CPI have been very supportive. The PC report next week will be a little bit less so. But I think that's, that's what you need. We're, we're not getting that evidence on the growth front as of yet. And so I would anticipate from uh, Powell 
probably next week, uh, Jackson Hole, from the Fed that they, they lean on to, into a hawkish bias still, uh, that the September SEP probably still shows some uh, idea of rate hikes uh, in the profile. And then more importantly, that they will probably hold that for even longer than anticipated. Let's talk about some of the potential drivers for weakness that might take hold next year. It's what everyone's been expecting, and they've been saying this for quite a while. So we'll put that as a caveat. Student loan repayments. This has been a hotly debated topic with some people coming out and saying, well, you know, if students don't want to pay or former students don't want to pay, they don't have to. They're not going to be penalized for 12 months. And other people saying, well, you know, they're going to try and they're going to have to pay back. Eventually, it will crimp their discretionary spending. Where do you fall on this? Yeah, so we've think we've thought that it's going to be this meaningful headwind to the consumer. If you look at you know student debt payments um, in the daily Treasury account, uh, they're down about seventy billion dollars relative to where we thought they would have been. So that's a, a meaningful hit to consumer income if it gets paid in full. There's been certainly programs there that are trying to um, alleviate some of the pressure on on consumers in terms of paying that over the next year or so. But we can track it on a daily basis. And if you look at the Treasury Daily account, you are seeing a meaningful uptick in payments taking place. So people are paying down their student debt uh, that we're not doing so previously. But my guess is that the impact is going to be less than anticipated or less than it was previously, simply because there are these programs that are trying to take away some of the pain. We're speaking with Matt Lazzetti, chief U.S. economist over at Deutsche Bank at a time where we're seeing strength pretty much across the board. We got reports uh, out of retailers, including Walmart, Tapestry, uh, Target yesterday, all of them showing strength in the consumer spending. Are you seeing any evidence that people are wholesale pulling back or not able to spend with such profligacy uh, of the recent past? Yeah, I think you know some things that you would would point to are are not primary but kind of secondary. So there's you know evidence that that excess savings have been drawn down. The San Francisco Fed put out a piece just this week saying that that it'll be gone in, in Q3, the current We've quarter. We've been talking about this forever, haven't we? Have, We've been saying it's going to run out, it's going to run out, and it never does. The, so that that part, you know, our view was always at the back half of this year, at the end of this year. And, and so I think that part is, is coming to fruition. I think you're seeing the evidence of that through, you know, as you saw rising credit card borrowing. You're seeing rising delinquencies. You know, those are now higher for autos and credit cards than they were before the pandemic. And so there are some strains there. Now, obviously, so far, that has not translated into retail sales data. It hasn't char- translated into the the high-frequency credit card spending data that, that we've seen. And so, so far, there's not evidence of that. The, you know, the, obviously, the, the big question is, can that continue to run even as you have credit card debt picking up, you have delinquencies rising, strains are there, excess savings come down, student debt payments come back. Again, our, our baseline is that, that it can run forever and that you'll see a, a slowdown that, that takes place, but the data have surprised the upside. Everything that we're talking about almost presumes American exceptionalism, that the U.S. economy can remain divorced from everything else that's been going on elsewhere. And I think about China, and every morning we come in and we open with China and we discuss everything that's happened and the weakening there. When you look at the connections between the world's two biggest economies, how divorced is the U.S. from catching a cold from what China seems to be experiencing right now? Yeah, I would view it maybe through two channels. I think directly economically... Uh, as we look at the U.S. economy today, I think it is primarily domestically driven. It's about the services economy. It's about the U.S. consumer. And whether or not you know, uh, Chinese consumers is strong in that environment is less relevant. So that, that direct economic impact to the U.S., I think, is, is probably more muted. Where I think it can have important linkages is through financial markets. And I think you know, some of the risk aversion that we're seeing is, is certainly being driven by, by uh, what we're hearing in the daily headlines that, that you get out of China. If it is to impact the U.S. 
economy more significantly? I think it has to be through financial markets. There you get turmoil that takes place there. And I think it's an interesting question. We talk about you know high real yields, high yields maybe not impacting the U.S. consumer as much. But perhaps where we're seeing it is more on the global sphere, and, and that that's where it's beginning to bite, and, and maybe there will be spillovers, but through financial markets. And this is a reason why people are wondering whether things are getting close to a breaking point at a time where the fundamental economy seems to be doing just fine. How closely do you watch that? The financial transmission mechanisms, the uh, surveys that come out, but also just some of the fissures happening on the global market sphere. Oh, I think you have to you know, follow financial conditions, however you might define them, very, very closely. I, I think we always, you know, part of the reason that we anticipate or people are anticipating we can get the soft landing is because you're getting the economic data take place. You're getting a Fed that was hawkish and raised rates very substantially, but financial conditions have not fallen apart. I think if you see equities come down, credit spreads widen, um, you know, the VIX come up, financial conditions tighten in, in a sharp and aggressive way, that often leads to very quick changes in narratives. And so if you get that taking place for whatever the reason might be, I think you'll see kind of a downgrade of, of soft landing prospects. What do you think people are getting most wrong right now? <laughs> it's a difficult environment. Uh, you know, if the economy is actually accelerating, then that is certainly, I, th I think, one that, that's, that, that is, uh, is getting wrong. On our baseline, you know, we still think that, that you have a recession. Um, that is not the prevailing narrative in the market right now, even if it's, you know, the baseline for, for most um, uh, economists. So I think if you get that, you know, the correction markets that we would need to see would be pretty substantial. The extent of Fed rate cuts next year would be far more substantial than what the market is pricing. Matt Lazzetti, uh, Chief U.S. Economist, joining us here uh, over at Deutsche Bank. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One company that's doing well, Walmart, once again, raising its annual profit forecast. This for the second straight quarter. The stock is higher here by about 1.1%. Better numbers, a beat on a top and bottom line and a raise to the outlook as well. Joe Fowden joins us now, the Senior Research Analyst and Assistant Director of Research at Towsi Advisory Group. Joe, great to catch up with you, sir, and good to continue this conversation on US retail. We asked the question, I know you've got the answers. If Walmart is doing well, what about everybody else? Yeah, you know, it, it really does reflect uh, that there could be some concern for other parts of the economy. Uh, you know, we continue to see the high end doing well, uh, the low end is um, seeking value. The middle income consumer has been trading down and seeking value. And now we've seen that with Walmart. You know, Amazon recently had very good results. And even Target yesterday, you know, their food and consumable side of the business was pretty healthy. And people were trading down there to, to, in that 
areas. So, you know, we're seeing increased traffic at Walmart. You're seeing uh, higher sales of groceries and and basic items and consumables. So, you know, the consumer is still putting food on the table and, and that's an area of focus. But discretionary has been soft. That's for sure. Joe, how much clarity have you got on where margins are going to be over the next couple of quarters? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, Walmart keeps putting up better margins than expected. Um, you know, they, I think the, the lower freight costs are helping, um, and that's helping all of retail. Remember, a year ago, two years ago, freight costs were through the roof, especially ocean freight, and that's come down quite a bit. So that's actually helping to provide a little bit of a tailwind and give some confidence, I think, in Wal- for Walmart and others to raise numbers for the back half. I mean, others are not doing that, but Walmart, for sure, you know, that raise that they gave is, is just really that confident in the fact that they're getting the traffic they're getting the sales on the top line and you know they really are getting the profitability they need to drop to the bottom line joe when you look beyond walmart when you look beyond target when you take a look at other retailers do you have a sense of discretionary spending money that people have parked in the bank do you have a sense of whether consumers are running out or whether they're doing just fine her view is that the consumer is is under some pressure and there's, they have some money to spend, but they're, it's only in pockets. So if you've planned a trip and you're going to Europe or you're going to other parts of the U.S., uh, or if you've planned a big event, you know, you're going to Taylor Swift concert, you know, that might take up a good chunk of your discretionary dollars that you would otherwise have spent on some goods. And I think during the pandemic, when we saw people spending a lot on goods, especially home and coming out of it, you saw a lot of spend on apparel last year. That doll- Those dollars have kind of shifted elsewhere. So, you know, we've looked at credit. I know consumer credit's been rising, but not to alarming levels. Uh, as of yet. And so the consumer is out there and able to spend it at the moment. You know, wage growth is still pretty solid. Employment levels are good, but they're not spending broadly. They're just spending within different silos. Uh, Obviously, food is one of them. But right now, services, going out to eat, while that is starting to moderate, um, you know, they are they have been spending there versus goods. This sounds prudent. This sounds like good balance sheet management. This sounds like actually responsible consumer spending habits. Doesn't it seem sustainable and doesn't really speak to some sort of broad slowdown in retailing that a lot of people say has to happen or consumer spending that has to happen for the U.S. economy to soften? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. You know, I I think that, you know, when you look at retail broadly, um, you know, again, anybody offering value, uh, those catering to, to essential goods are doing well. Um, you know, where there's was a lot of pull forward of demand during the pandemic, we're still in a normalization phase coming off of that. And I think the consumer has been very prudent with how they've been spending. And, um, you know, we're hopeful that we're going to have a solid back half and a, and a decent holiday season. You know, we'll hear more from Walmart when they speak in a few minutes. But, you know, it just seems that the consumer is um is has been more resilient than i think a lot of us have given credit at this point in the year before you run off for that call and i know you've got to listen to that target yesterday said this joe that the resumption of student loan repayments would cause additional pressure on strained consumer budgets lisa's been saying this all week the white house instituted a 12-month on-ramp are they just setting up a decent thing to blame later on this year (laughs) joe what's your read on that yeah, well, you know, so we did a, a deep dive report on this and an analysis of student loan debt. And, you know, there's 17% of the U.S. adult population has student loans, uh, federal student loans, that are going to have to start being paid back. Now, they won't be penalized, perhaps, for a year. So there's a little bit of a grace period. 
But, you know, our thought process on this was that that, again, that middle income, middle to upper is where you start to see more of that pressure. Those are the people that do have the student loans. Target's customer is really that customer. And so you, we, we called out in our report that we thought Target was among those that might see a little more of an impact from student loans. Uh, maybe less so at, at, a, at a place like Walmart, which sells so much grocery and people have been trading down and seeking value. Uh, you don't quite have that at a Target. So I think there there is some reality there. I don't think the student loan thing will be broad-based for everybody. Again, you know, the high, very high end won't be a bit an issue. And then that really the low end doesn't, it, it may not be as much of an issue either. It's really the middle that once again is going to get squeezed on this. Joe, I'm just curious where we are in some of the durable mm-hmm. goods sectors, which a lot of people are wondering how long can keep contracting. Are we at a point, an inflection point to the other direction, where suddenly people are starting to go back to things that they shunned after the mass binge buying during the pandemic? You know, we, we started to see through the summer some early signs that you might be seeing a little bit of a shift from the services back towards goods. And we're, we're hopeful that that will continue into the fall and, you know, holiday will come, Christmas will come, kids will get gifts, uh, you know, so that spending will happen. Uh, we're hoping that that shift is a little bit more aggressive back towards the goods on the retail side of the sector. Um, but it seems, that, again, that there are some initial green green shoots there uh, that just the, the good spending might start to come back. I thought you were going to break out to a Christmas song then, Joe. <laughs> I hope the kids get gifts. Kids will get gifts. I hope they get gifts. You know, well, maybe. They'll <laughs> get something so. under the tree. Joe, thank you. Joe Feldman at Towsie Advisory Group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.